Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. With FIFA set to announce the host cities for the 2026 World Cup later this week, we here at Kegolazo decided to go back in time and explore how USA 94 contributed towards growing the profile of soccer in North America from a fringe sport to a mainstream pastime. With me to discuss the impact the tournament has had on the hearts and minds of American sports fans is former USMNT International, my good friend, one-third of In Soccer We Trust, Jimmy Conrad returns, as well as a man who has seen, heard, and called it all the beautiful voice, the legend of US Soccer Broadcasting, Phil Shane. Kego Lasso begins <laughs> right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Kego Lasso. Kego Lasso pod on Twitter, youtube.com forward slash Kego Lasso. Jimmy Conrad, we're on TikTok as well now. Kego Lasso pod on TikTok. What do you think about that? What is even happening? That is incredible. Congratulations. I look forward to seeing all your dances, LME. I love it. And Jimmy Conrad from In Soccer We Trust. By the way, this is a heavy, heavy American soccer narrative. And don't forget to check out In Soccer We Trust. So much great stuff, including a really good interview with Brendan Aronson. Make sure that you check it out. Jimmy, Heath Pierce, and Charlie Davis. But it's not just Jimmy and yours truly. Phil, Shane, I have had such the pleasure of watching you, listening to you, that beautiful, soothing voice. And now you are here, my friend. Phil, Shane, how are you? I'm just trying to figure out, does this mean now that we're on TikTok that I'm an influencer? Am I an influencer? Yes, is this going to impress my teenagers? Confirmed. You're officially okay, an influencer, good. Phil Confirmed. Shane. Isn't that right, Jimmy? Confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, welcome to the show, my friend. It's really great to have you. It's the debut for Phil. And by the way, we'll have our Twitter handles here as well. So make sure to follow all of us, including Phil and Jimmy, of course, today. As we discussed in the intro, as we get ready for the announcements of what cities, what venues will be hosting the 2026 World Cup, a massive, a massive moment in American soccer history, to be honest, as we get ready for that tournament. But also, you know, looking ahead to November and the World Cup in Qatar and the USMNT gets ready. So much to be excited about when you're an American fan. So today is about looking back about, you know, the World Cup in 1994. And it was good to really analyze that tournament and sort of what's happened since then and how we can look at it retrospectively as we look ahead to 2022 and, of course, 2026. Jimmy, let me begin with you, buddy. Um, just, you know, I wasn't in the country. I was in Peru still moving to England, but I saw all the craziness that USA 94 was given. As an outsider, I was just amazed at the spectacle and just how that tournament essentially evolved and Brazil winning in the end. How did you see it specifically as it was leading to that? You know, we're going to get into before that, because obviously the USMNT shocked England in 1950. You know, there was regional matches and pockets of interest in the Northeast, Cascadia, California. But, you know, just soccer in general, leading up to 94 World Cup, how was it? Well, there was no NASL that had folded in 83 or 84, if I'm not mistaken. And so... I think there was a thirst from FIFA's perspective, and I'm kind of speaking overarching. I wasn't really paying attention to this because I was like seven, but but 
there was a thirst for them to break into this market. They could obviously see how much potential this country had, not only from a business standpoint, but let's be honest with, with FIFA, it's always about business, but also from, from development and knowing that they needed a professional league. So it was a big surprise when they announced on July 4th, 1988, over Brazil and Morocco, U.S. got 10 votes, the smallest amount of votes to ever capture being a host country for a World Cup. And everybody was pissed, Luis. Everyone's like, what are these guys? They don't even have a professional league. Why do they already deserve it? What are you even talking about? So uh, later that year, they had the World Cup draw in Vegas. 500 million people watched it on television. And of course, we had it in Vegas because why wouldn't we? Oh, approximately, there, this has been reported, only 1 million Americans watched it. <laughs> wow. And there was some journalists, some journalists, and I, I had to go look this up and get it confirmed. But some journalists said, having the World Cup in the United States is liking... Uh, it likens to holding a major skiing competition in an African country. Wow. Like they seemed that the World Cup USA seemed completely absurd and to some extent blasphemous in the eyes of the European community. And they were hot about it all the way up until kickoff of the first game. So it's, it's crazy that there was that type of sentiment now that I'm older and have seen how the world works in a lot of different ways. I'm not surprised. But, but for me personally, by the time the, the tournament kicked off, I was in high school. We couldn't afford tickets, but I lived about 15 minutes away from the Rose Bowl. And what my friends and I did, and this is where I think my, my love for the game got planted even further, was that I went to this place called Old Town Pasadena, where they have the Rose Parade, and, and mm. people congregated after the game, because you could walk from the Rose Bowl to Old Town Pasadena. And we would go and just hang out with all the fans from different countries. And, and at that moment, I realized that the support for this sport is different than any other American sport. When you go to a baseball game, it's like, you know, you're hanging there with your dad or one of your parents, it's, it's, it's a little bit more about that relationship. And you're just doing that with a whole bunch of people in the same space. But when you are in basketball, go to a Lakers game, you couldn't show up on time. You show up fashionably late. You know, I'm, I grew up in LA, so the Lakers, but, but so these were all these little things. It was like a cool thing to be there. But when you're, when you're supporting this sport, it, it's, it's about being something bigger than yourself. And you're in, and when you get to be hanging around the Brazilians who are losing their minds after winning the world cup final, I think you really appreciate just how big of an event this was and what kind of ripple effect it's going to have for the rest of the country. And I think we have plenty of, of evidence as to how that's changed. Uh, how oh, and a ripple effect, by the way, Jimmy, excuse me, but no, that went good. around the globe. We wouldn't have had South Africa. We wouldn't have had Qatar. Mm -hmm, I mean, forget mm -hmm. about some of the other things. If it weren't for the fact that someone was brave enough to give it to this backwater country. Now, I, I think over the years, as we just kind of saw it yesterday uh, with, what is it, $2.5 billion going to MLS. That's another thing that wouldn't have happened because now you're starting to see the fruit of that, just as the World Cup in some ways was the fruit of the NASL. That goes back to 1950, et cetera, um, and all the way back to, to the very first World Cup and before. Soccer has a huge history in the United States. It's just been under the radar mm -hmm. and probably under a few mountains and trash heaps as well. But now finally <laughs> we're seeing a lot of that fruit come out and uh, talking about Jimmy, uh, some of the things that have carried on. I mean, Detroit, think about this indoors at the silver dome, they put yeah. grass down on the field and everyone's that was one. It's going to be a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I guess the only real disaster of 94 was Diana Ross uh, stumbling the off penalty. stage. <laughs> How do you miss that, by the way? <laughs> well, honestly, we got to give context. For those that don't know, Diana Ross was part of the opening ceremonies, mm -hmm. and they had this big ceremonial like lead-up to her taking a penalty. 
and the goalkeeper was actually trying to dive out of the way so that she could <laughs> score, and she missed it wide. Now she and had the to keep ball the show is gigantic. The ball is gigantic. It's like a massive is, balloon. I, I don't know how she missed, and uh, it, that that is one of many things, uh, Phil. So I'm glad you brought that up. Another thing too that was happening in that World Cup that I think impacted the rest of the world was that this is the tournament where the back pass rule was gone because right. of the 1990 World Cup and because of how stifled it was and how slow it was. They they took away the back pass, which I think is was incredibly important for the tournament overall. I think they almost close averaged to close to three goals a game after that that rule yeah. change, and then and then they switched from three points for a win uh, instead of two points, and it just kind of forced all the teams to want to go for it and actually go for the win. And and I thought that that World Cup definitely outside of the final, which all finals are a little bit tight, but uh, it was a really entertaining World Cup overall. And I think there were a couple. Fundamental things. Also, Russia competed as Russia for the first time in that USSR. Uh, Germany competed for the first time as a unified nation. So there are a lot of things that were going on in this World Cup and and uh, that were really impactful for the world overall and for the U.S., of course. Yeah, and it was the pinnacle, of course, of South American soccer as well. Carlos Valderrama and the golden generation of Colombia as well. And Brazil, of course, uh, the eventual champion. You said something, Jimmy, in your story at the beginning, how, you know, uh, hanging out with different cultures, different people, that was a major impact. And I think that continues to be so specifically in this country, a country of immigrants. All right. So, Phil, let's talk about this then in terms of the World Cup in itself in 1994. During the tournament and maybe even just after that, did you begin to see a renewed interest, a trend within the nation. You mentioned, of course, that soccer was still here, but in different pockets and sort of underseen, you know, through the specter of, of the overall American landscape. But how did you see it during the tournament and sort of right after it happened? Did you see a, a tremendous jump or, or, or was it still sort of a, a, a stop and steady? Well, I would say there was a huge jump that could have been a huger jump if it weren't for a white Bronco. Um, but you take a look at what was going on back then, and it was really this underground culture. And a lot of people who were huge soccer fans that had gone through a decade of the desert now getting a chance to go out. I was fortunate enough. Uh, I started doing ESPN and television the next year with national, but I was doing radio broadcasts from the Florida sites up in Orlando. So I was getting in the stadiums, getting baked, maybe not quite as baked as the Irish players. And I'm not just talking about the sun. <laughs> um, but if you've ever, if you've ever been down to, to downtown uh, Orlando, there's some, there's some fun places. And it was really cool to watch teams come into these establishments en masse and just mingle you wouldn't see that nowadays in some ways yeah. because of the culture of the united states at that point um i think it might have been the last one where the players actually got a chance to be human and not just totally segregated into these little camps right. but uh as far as your question goes Luis, it was the the soccer fans coming out and so many of the mainstream media trying to shoot down this little tournament and the fact that no one cares, except for the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people that were down at the stadiums watching, millions of people that were watching online and, and were taking off. Uh, it was it was a huge experience. But then again, the, the whole 
just maybe the bad luck of soccer in America at that time um, that has continued, I guess, even to the start of MLS, uh, the whole O.J. Simpson situation and with the That's United right. States advancing into the knockout stage uh, where a lot of that glory that could have come and a lot of the focus ended up getting shunted off to a lesser network while the, the big networks were kind of chasing a, a, an SUV around. So I, I do think it was huge. I don't think that the impact was really truly felt until afterwards because there were other distracting things going on. But it was an amazing time to be a soccer fan. Yeah, I would jump in and say that up until, I don't know if this has changed, it might still stand, but uh, total attendance records were set in the 94 World Cup. Average attendance was 68, 69,000 people per game. Mm -hmm. So okay. it became to a point, Phil's, to, to Phil's uh, point, that it became undeniable that the game could work in this country. Now, there was a promise from U.S. soccer to FIFA that, hey, we're going to give you this World Cup, but you have to have a domestic league that follows this World Cup. Yeah. And I remember thinking, OK, when is this domestic league going to happen? The World Cup happened in the summer of 94 and then it got postponed. Phil could probably back me up on this. I think in 95, MLS was supposed to launch. It didn't. Yeah, And that's when guys like Winalda and Ramos and everyone had to all of a sudden pack bags and head around the world for a that's year's right. work before they came back. So, yeah, there was a lot that was going on. Yeah, thank you for that. And and I just remember being a little bit frustrated that we had this momentum and it felt like we let it drop in some capacity. It was always going to be tough to just start a league from scratch and, and obviously to do it in the way that we were doing it with uh, Kansas City Wiz and the San Jose Clash, you know, and all these. Oh, those uh, names are beautiful. Now, <laughs> amazing now, right? I mean, people would, would kill for that because there was uh, there's some nostalgia wrapped around yeah, all that. Yeah, our cultish time, sort of behavior. Yeah, Memphis yeah. Grizzlies. Titans, you know, that never, exactly. never carries over to other sports. No, yeah. it never does. It never does. But we were trying to find, and I think we did for a long time, and maybe even to this day, we're still trying to find that merge of respecting what American sports do in this country, but also respecting the game and how it's played everywhere else around the world. And, and I think that's been part of the struggle as we tried to find our own identity, which is a bigger conversation. We can talk about that later. But I think also, and I think Phil brought up a, a really interesting point, that we had to win people over. And... I feel like there were editors in charge, people that were running newspapers, people in charge of the media outlets that just didn't want to see this game be successful in this country. It wasn't a, it wasn't an American game. It's a foreign game. And and uh, I feel like we're still fighting that in some capacity. We're waiting for these editors and guys to retire or die. And then we can get people in that actually love the game. And that's starting to happen now because people that are in charge are starting to give the game a lot more respect. No, there was yeah. a subculture for soccer back then and the mainstream as I said, didn't want to waste any brain cells trying to learn something new. But because the subculture actually proved to be uh, so huge, it, it kind of forced its way into into the mentality of America and continues to grow to this day. Well, you know, interestingly enough, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we'll, we'll get into that part about soccer after 1994, including, of course, you know, the dawn of MLS, uh, the league's initial struggles, you know, and then even further on, of course, the designated uh, player rule and uh, David Beckham, et cetera, and so much more. And then we'll wrap everything up as we look ahead to 2026, because the World Cup is coming back to North America and specifically the United States. Jimmy Conrad, Phil Shane, LME, Kego Lasso, we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Jimmy Conrad showing his badge there. I love that shirt there, Jimmy. Phil Shane, of course. Welcome to Kegolas on his debut as we talk about USA 94. But now we're talking about the after effects of USA 94. Uh, you know, obviously, this is about MLS and the dawn of MLS and 
you know, how the league responded. Phil, I believe that you called the first game, MLS. Uh, talk to me about that uh, initial stages. How did you feel about that reaction as major league soccer, you know, made its imprint uh, on the American landscape? Well, I mean, in some ways, I don't, Jimmy might've been part of that last generation that actually, um, didn't really realize what it was like to have top flight soccer here growing up. Uh, and, and it's a little different mentality because when you're a youngster and you're growing into it, he didn't really get the chance to experience watching the likes of a Palais, watching mm. Beckenbauer or down here, Gerd Muller, Nene Kubias, Ray Hudson, et cetera. Nene uh, Kubias, you say? Oh, uh, I, I'm yeah. glad you included that person. I'm yeah. going to keep going, Phil. Keep going. and Rangan on the same team. Can you imagine it? <laughs> you um, know, unbelievable. Anyway, unbelievable. Uh, to experience that and then all of a sudden just have it fall off of a cliff mm. and to be absolutely nothing, nothing against missile, nothing against what was going on in the NPSL, et cetera. There were some, some nice efforts. What There were some great moments in the A-League and WSA and everything else like that, but it wasn't first division. So we have the World Cup. We prove that soccer can succeed if it's done well. And then as Jimmy talked about, uh, the delay, which was smart. It's better to wait and do it right than to fall off a cliff and never get a second chance. So they yeah. made sure the first impression would be good. But in answer to your question, yeah, being there at Spartan Stadium in San Jose, watching the earthquakes take on DC United, the clash, excuse me, um, Amazing. marketing geniuses. Uh, <laughs> and even then, just leading up to it, you had everyone down on the field. You had the, the jets flying by, parachutes dropping balls off. Uh, that is still probably my favorite moment of being a broadcaster, number one, because it was personal yeah. and it was my trip through a desert as well. And I was almost a fan representative getting a chance to experience this up close and personal. Right. And it was very emotional to see the return of soccer. And then they yeah. actually kicked the ball off and you realize <laughs> yeah. there was still a lot of work to be a done. A lot of work to do. A lot of work uh, to do. The parachute, did the parachute end up landing in the right spot is what I want to know. It did. Uh, and thank goodness for Eric Winalda, the ball did as well. Eventually uh, <laughs> I was just afraid again, thinking of the Rick Riley's and everyone else in the world that had their arrows aiming for a bullseye. Yeah, I remember that the first match goes scoreless and you're going to the, the penalty shootout or the, the 35 yard shootout to decide, Amazing. but when all made sure there was uh, a crooked number up on the screen uh, at the end. So and it was it a was good goal too. It wasn't like, and yeah. it was the start again to where we are right now, seeing the world cup about to come back. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I'm glad he scored as well. Uh, Phil, I remember watching that game and it was a good goal. He made Jeff Agus yep. and then put it, curled it into the corner. And so it was nice that it was something worthy of ooing and awing about. If it had just been an own goal or something, you know, it just would have still allowed the Rick Riley's of the world to, to well, let's look at this game. So I can't even score a proper goal or whatever the crap is uh, without really understanding the subtleties and nuances. But I was very proud as well that the league had gotten started, that, that there was finally some follow through on the promise from the 94 World Cup. And it gave... Uh, kids my age, uh, a chance to see that this was possible in this country. And I think that's that's really important to 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 the development and to the dreams of, of certain kids who maybe played other sports. But now there was a viable option to potentially play professionally here in your own country and to represent the city where you grew up, where you grew up. And that was uh, I could only watch UCLA games when I was a kid. There was no professional league, as Phil mentioned. There was no yeah. NASL. So I had to go watch the L.A. Lasers and indoor soccer. What a name. Uh, and Yeah, amazing. Or, or the San Diego Soccers, 
I would. Uh, <laughs> no way. That's the yeah. name. Hey, the and by the way, don't mess with them. They're 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 amazing. Or they, they were are like one of the most uh, yes uh, accomplished indoor teams in the history of. That indoor is, indoor. I got. Do we need to bring all these names back? I don't know what needs to happen, but we need to like revitalize that. I love everything about the. Hey, Jimmy, you need stuff. to make sure you need to make sure that Luis wears a Colorado Caribou jersey. To the yes. Oh my God, what a name! I just like the idea of like these owners. It's like three a.m. They're like wasted, and they're just like, I'm gonna call my team the san diego soccers because i want to <laughs> Dude, they, with they are that's with a k it's with a k. even it's better yeah it's it's uh pretty amazing just go and look at all the nicknames over, over the years but jimmy would you say then that the next stage then right leading up to that after a few years now mls uh developing or at the very least trying to go step by step then comes 2007 right and then comes obviously david beckham's arrival designated rule player rule would you say that that's really the next step that not only elevated the league or maybe made it at the very least from a marketing perspective notable yeah i would say that i played through a portion of mls 1.0 and mls 2.0 and i'd say that 2.0 started when david beckham came into the league uh and and mls 1.0 i'll give you an example when i got i didn't get drafted when i got signed by the san jose clash we would have to go change at Spartan Stadium, okay. So, but that we couldn't use San Jose State. That's where the we couldn't use their fields. We couldn't use the fields that were right outside of our locker room. Oh my god! We had to get in cars and drive thirty plus minutes down to a youth facility in Morgan Hill. For everybody that's in the Bay Area, is like, are you insane? Then because you're like, I don't want to drive back after practice yeah. and go back there because you probably live closer to this field. Than you do to the, the oh, you locker stay room. overnight there or whatever. Well, yeah, you stay overnight in these little sleeping tags and tents. That would be amazing. <laughs> but no, we would change out of the trunk of our cars and hand our dirty stuff to the equipment manager. Or we our equipment manager is like, I can't take all this. You have to go wash your own stuff for that. I mean, that's it's insane that that was oh, our. No, and, and now, and- Jimmy, we're at the point where you have young guys like Kobe Henry, who never even played in MLS. He's down in the lower divisions, signing million-dollar deals to play in the first division in France. It's unbelievable, Phil. I mean, that is <laughs> – it's crazy. And there's like $100 million training facilities now. I, I can't – in some ways, I can't even believe that it's real. And and not that these guys that have never experienced are spoiled, but they are kind of spoiled. You know, they got they got the goods. They have everything at their disposal now to be top players, and there really is no excuse if they can't squeeze everything out of what they have. Whereas it's the rest because of, us, of your no, story no though, that it's I, I, come to this, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, somebody had to, to walk, walk the path and that exactly. was my time to make that happen. But when, when Beckham came in, I, I want to use this, this story as an example, because when Beckham came in, he would hear about this stuff and he would be like, what the hell? This isn't these, well, you can't treat people like this. Yeah. And, and all the, oh, let me do the Beckham impression. This can't be right. I've got to go there and sort it out. <laughs> That's amazing. No, but by the way, Jimmy's talking, talking truth here because yeah. it was basically David Beckham sitting in first class, looking back at all the other guys who were cramped like eight to a seat. Um, <laughs> and he ends up going back and joining him for a bit and then changing it. Um, yeah. He started the, the procedure. And now we see a lot more of it, especially with international play uh, that, we end up having charter flights. I mean, you're staying in better in yeah. better hotels, eating at better restaurants, better training grounds. And those are things you don't think about with David Beckham. You're thinking about bringing in maybe other names. But because of that, um, things that maybe Donna Donnie, Echeverry, Valderrama put up with or were yeah. given uh, separate treatment, David Beckham kind of lifted the entire league. Yeah. 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 Well, we, we would hear, we would hear as players what, how the Galaxy were being treated. And at this point, we weren't unionized, right? There was no union, players' union yet. 
So you what did like, you what? feel as players, as your team? You're like, like that you is some BS. Like, that's super cool that Beckham's getting that change for the Galaxy, but that's now feels like a an advantage yeah. that the Galaxy has. That disparity has. is like insane. Right, right. Right, right. Not only did they sign him to big money and they got a top player, and and uh, it was cool because we were once Beckham signed, it, the whole league became a water cooler topic. And people were like, dude, did you hear Beckham sign an MLS? Yeah. That's crazy. You're gonna he's coming up here in like two weeks. You want to go? Like we never had that type of buzz before. So there was no, I was actually on a plane with Ty Keo and Frank Yallop. And Frank, there must have been like six people on this plane. Um, and Frankie's like halfway back. Everyone else is in the front. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And I think Frankie knew what he was in for because now could you imagine managing the with the media horde coming in and all the attention and trying to tell David Beckham what to do? Now, the good <laughs> thing was, and I think one of the reasons it worked is um, while Beckham knew how things should be, he also uh, was a perfect teammate, a captain, a leader. A lot of the stuff that he might complain about was probably done behind closed doors, uh, had other people perhaps bring it up. He, he was not the disruption that I think Yallop might have feared, but if you notice, Frank Yallop didn't stick around as manager much longer because they needed someone who could perhaps handle that. And, and it was this whole change. Now you're seeing bigger managers come in, younger managers, new styles. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, again, transitioned to the point where we do have the headliners. Not all of them are as... <clears throat> Uh, successful as Gonzalo Higuain, but you're also starting to see some of the younger players come up. And with the, the importance of the academies and selling players off, it's not just Dallas anymore. The Dallas and the Red Bulls, every single one, they're bringing players down from Alaska. I yeah. mean, yeah. it used to be if you didn't live in the shadow of the stadium, good luck. But yeah. now I think MLS has joined the real world. Yeah, and it said the trend, as you mentioned, specifically the Galaxy. When somebody like Slatan Ibrahimovic comes to the league, it's like, well, historically, we can deal with this and we can kind of turn it into, at the very least, the same thing than how, well, not exactly the same, but how Beckham arrived to the league. And some people talk about retirement leagues, Luis, sorry, and yeah. Jimmy. No, no, go ahead, buddy, go ahead. Yeah. Some people talk about retirement leagues, but you need to have those superstars I was gonna say yeah. to draw thing. the attention, to get the media to throw two, $250,000 a year. You need a, a balance. Year. It can't just but be you one need thing. Also, it needs you need to balance. have the journeyman, the the Rui Diaz's, et cetera, bring up yep. another Peruvian. Yeah, thank um, you for that. I appreciate no it. No problem. But then, yep. and then you need to have the youngsters coming through to keep the pipeline flowing. You need to get them in the door, but then you need to show them something to get them to come back. There are three I, things in MLS that I feel always need to be specific in order for it to continue to grow, which is, I believe, what it's doing. And what you just said, right? These uh, stars that have proved their worth in Europe and coming here, fine. But the second part is the developing of the of, of talent within the country and also the thing that I personally like the most is the extra focus on Latin American yet undiscovered talent that comes in. And that's going to be a massive part. Jimmy, go ahead, jump no, in. No, I was just going to jump in and piggyback uh, Phil's sentiments about these signing these players. Yes, you know, we get a Wayne Rooney or whatever. They're past their sell dates, Laton. But when they come in, there's still a standard that they've seen in their career. And I think that it's up to the organization that signs these players to listen to what these guys have to say. It might be can construed as ah uh, he's high maintenance and this and that but i think what the galaxy did and smartly did with david beckham was that tim laiwiki who really kind of generated this idea of a designated player and getting beckham to sign and, and one of the the, the the architects of all that he listened and then he did something about it because there's been a lot of executives we talked to a lot of people along the way as players that this isn't right we shouldn't be treated like this if you want to be taken as one of the top five leagues or sports leagues in this country this is not how you treat your players and, and, and this is not how it should be. And now it's starting to evolve into that. And somebody, as I mentioned before, a, a generation of players or two had to kind of walk that path to get it to where it is now. And 
Zlatan still comes in and could probably still nitpick about how it could be better. But ultimately, and I think this is to 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 Phil's point about getting kids from from Alaska. We finally have an, uh, an infrastructure that okay, the platform's there. We can see the top, but how do what's the pipeline to get there? There now seems yeah, to be the foundation. Yeah. a more of an obvious path to say, hey, if you do these things and you do it well, you're gonna have an opportunity to be seen by proper scouts, proper coaching. And if it all works out, then we're now starting to identify players of all walks of life, to your point, Luis, which is very, very important. But even now, I still feel like our scouting could be better, our coaching could be better, our refereeing yeah, could be better. Yeah, absolutely. It's not but, perfect. But that's, it's a continued evolution, and I think that things are moving in the right direction. Absolutely. And making it a transactional league, where now you're a selling league as well. I mean, the likes of Alfonso Davies, et cetera. One, but we're nearly coming to the end here with Phil Shane and Jimmy Conrad. A, a great discussion here. I mean, I'm illuminated by all this. I'm just a Peruvian kid that grew up in... England and just reading all of this is amazing. But there's a few points before we get into 2026, because obviously that's the exciting part of it. But we cannot discount, Phil Shane, the United States women's national team and their achievements and their journey, because I believe that, you know, through all the struggles the men have had, definitely from an international perspective, the women have really set the president. Obviously, our friend Grant Wall did a great podcast with this back, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, I forget the name of um, Blue Wire, I believe, a, a great uh, show about the documentary on, on the women's side. But we can't discount the women's side and their impact uh, on the game in this country, Phil. No, absolutely. And in some ways, you can look at 94, and I think they use that a little bit of a launch pad themselves because from the player's perspective, if you're a soccer fan, you're a soccer fan. Yeah. Um, I think for many, many years, if you were a men's soccer fan, the women's game didn't really exist or was on the periphery. If you were a women's soccer fan, same thing the other way. I, and from a basketball perspective, I remember going back to my radio days up in New Jersey, and it wasn't just Rutgers, but uh, a lot of basketball teams used to stop doing doubleheaders because half the fans would get up after the women's game and leave, which was kind of embarrassing to the men's team. Yeah. Um, but now we're starting to see that merge more and more, and that goes beyond – 94 it goes into mls it goes through wusa and into its current incarnation etc uh, where they're starting to make that climb and it's world cup women's world cup after women's world cup it's seeing the likes of a brazil jump up a france jump up a canada jump up where there's some competition going on and the u.s women actually uh as opposed to just total domination now actually have to break a sweat and not just physical talent, but put some skill on the table as well, uh, that they have progressed. And from the likes of, of an icon like Michelle Akers through, through Mia Hamm to Alex Morgan and the like, and, and Rose Lavelle right now, who's probably one of my favorites on this U.S. women's team. For sure. Yeah. A lot of that follows the same. And more and more, we're seeing that merge. And I think we're getting to a point. We've seen little outreaches, and I'm not saying it's going to be uh, – a total tie together, but with these training facilities, the men aren't always practicing there. Uh, right. The youth teams don't always have a tournament going on all the time with these stadiums and congratulations to Kansas city, two beautiful stadiums, one for the men, one for the women. But I think we're going to start to see more and more, especially in the bigger cities, a more of a merger and a cohesiveness between the two, uh, maybe all the way down to the owner, or at least up until that point. So uh, I, I think that that's going to help. And we're seeing it internationally as well from the Olympic Lyon, the PSG, the Barcelona's. I mean, when you think about it um, globally, and the U.S. women are a huge part of this. Was it the two or three biggest attendances for soccer matches 
this calendar year yeah. have been Barcelona's women. Yeah. Over 85, 90,000. And so that just gives you an idea of what World Cup 94 through MLS into the women's national team, et cetera, have done. And I don't think we're anywhere near a conclusion on that regard. What, what, what's crazy to me, and, and I love all that context, Phil, is that the U.S. women's national team had their first ever game in 1985. And their jerseys that they were using were hand-me-downs from the men, and they had to sew USA patches onto their jerseys. That's crazy. Within six years, they won the first ever Women's World Cup in 91. So the ball was already kind of moving in some capacity for them. We're talking proper legends. Joy Fawcett, Michelle Akers, Christine Lilly, Julie Foudy, Mia Hamm. I mean – proper proper legends and and uh it, it's cool to call them or a couple of them my friends which is uh, pretty surreal that's my flex of the day yeah that's and a then in 95 95 they didn't they didn't win it they they lost unfortunately in in the semifinals but in 96 that was the first time women's soccer was ever had in the olympics and they ended up winning the gold medal and even then even though that that olympics was in atlanta it felt like their big watershed moment was the 1999 World Cup in the Rose Bowl, very similar to the 94 World Cup, where Brandi Chastain scored that infamous penalty, which made her famous around the world. And, and really, I thought, shed light, to, to Phil's point, about what was possible for women's soccer, not only here in this country, but globally, that there can be that support and, and love and passion and enthusiasm around the women's game. And so that for me was big. And it's all kind of around the same time where things are starting to move in a positive way of how the game is growing in this country. Now, there's been a lot of stops and starts with the women, and they probably didn't capitalize on that momentum, just like MLS couldn't after the 94 World Cup as well. But some of these things had to be done, and some of these successes had to be achieved, especially from the women's who were probably having a bigger chip on their shoulder and fighting for more, which has been very cool to see it culminate now from a U.S. perspective with the men's and women's teams working together to have their own collective bargaining agreement with U.S. soccer and that everything is shared and everything is fair. And uh, that is very cool. And that's now kind of setting a trend because Canada is trying to do the same thing with their men's and women's national team. And and uh, so, yes, it's all it's all right now. It feels pretty good. Obviously, there's still some issues in different areas of the game and and. And hopefully some of that gets eradicated and continues to evolve in, in a positive way. But just to think where we were, you know, in 94 to where we are now, I think there's been some vast improvements. Now, I'd still say I'm a little bit impatient in some areas. I wish our men's team was having and enjoying this type of success that our women's team uh, has had. But but uh, yeah, we still got some work to do. And, and I'm excited about this upcoming World Cup and obviously the one we're hosting in 2026. Well, that's where we're ending here, because to your point that Jimmy uh, and Phil chime in after Jimmy, I'll come back to you, Jimmy, literally just to keep on going and wrapping sure. this up. It's been a fantastic conversation, but obviously 2022 is is the uh, you know primal objective uh, months away from that. Greg Berhalter continues to build his squad. Of course, uh, a lot of excitement for the USMNT fan, you know, young players, not just playing in Europe, but playing key roles in big European teams. That's a massive thing. And of course, the development of a player like Colombian born uh, Jesus Ferreira, et cetera. You know, but 2026, what's the short and long term effect, do you think? What, what's going to happen? I'm optimistic as a U.S. resident looking ahead to 2026, Jimmy. But, you know, between now and then, what, what are we hoping for as we, you know, the day is January 1st, 2026, right? Months away from the tournament beginning. It's an expanded World Cup, 48 teams, a celebration of the game. We already know what venues are going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. What are you hoping for by that time that year comes? Well, I think when 94 hit our shores, people were just like, whoa, this 
this thing's a pretty big deal. Look at this. Look at all these people here. They're from all over the world. This is crazy. You know, and there was kind of that, that shock and awe. And now I want to see with 2026 that it's just so undeniable that, that the people that were maybe shocked and all like, no, we could see it coming the whole time. And this game's amazing. And look how much it brings people together. And, and so you want the big brands, you want more big brands to buy in from a, from a business perspective. You want the Apple TVs to invest in the domestic league. You you want there to continue to be this legitimate buy-in from the people that control the media in this country so that it continues to get the love and respect that it deserves on the men's and women's side, despite this being a men's world cup. Now I heard there's rumors that the women's world cup in 2027 could be in the U S as well. That would be awesome to have back-to-back World Cups in, in consecutive summers. But I think it's going to get to a point where the, the, the people that have been gatekeeping and not allowing soccer to grow in this country will have no other choice but to open the gate and, and let us, in some ways, compete fairly to try to really nudge our way in as, as a major sport in this country. Well, even more so than in 94, Jimmy. The before in 94, there was this underground media. I don't know if people remember. It kind of like what RSS is today, where you had to kind of go online, Facebook chat rooms and the like. We talked about the <laughs> Women's World Cup. I remember in 91, good luck trying to find a, I don't even think it was televised. Or if right. it was, it never made it outside of China and the like. But uh, but there was this underground situation but now things have been so nichified i mean just take a look at this podcast um you look at sirius xm i remember the world cup in 06 where after some of the games that we were doing at the stadiums you sit down and there's like truck drivers in idaho and and uh housewives in in vermont that are doing the laundry that are calling up saying hey could you believe that morocco goal yeah Uh, i mean it's just it's it's amazing it was always there but now even more so with the nichification where there there is enough revenue coming in to make things like this possible we don't need the mainstream media anymore and really it's their survival that's at stake not soccer's yeah you better keep up or you're gonna get left behind absolutely the the amalgamation of access because in this country i I tell my friends all over the world i can watch any game pay a reasonable amount of money to watch any game i want in this country also you know there's no better place to be a soccer fan Absolutely. This is it, baby. We're looking good. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Before we say goodbye to Phil Shane and Jimmy Conrad, we always end Phil here with final thoughts. And it can be about what we're talking about or it can be about anything else. Perhaps looking ahead to what venues are going to host what matches, Jimmy Conrad. I'm thinking I'm trying to guess where the final will be played. Jimmy, give me your final thoughts, buddy, before we say goodbye. Sure. You want to talk about that? I, I hope that it's in L.A because of the 94 World Cup final being at the Rose Bowl, 99 World Cup final for the women at the Rose Bowl. Mm. I don't think the Rose Bowl is even really being considered. It's going to be SoFi Stadium where the Rams just won the Super Bowl, even though the dimensions aren't there yet. They're going to probably figure it out so they can make billions of dollars, everybody. Well, Yankee Stadium figured it out. so That's true. If you host in L.A. and you start the game at noon and it's covered, right? You don't have to worry about the elements and you can, can control that. I feel like that's the best time slot that the rest of the most of the world can watch it live. And so I feel like LA might be might be the destination. I don't think it'll be in New York cuz it's not covered there and it's going to be super hot if it's a game in the middle of the day. Uh maybe Dallas potentially because they have that covered Dallas Cowboys stadium. That's just my my thoughts over there. Mercedes-Benz? I, what do you think? Mercedes-Benz maybe. Maybe maybe I mean a covered stadium might uh lend itself to being able because as I mentioned you can control the elements, but it's got to hit as many time zones as possible so they can get yeah. as many eyeballs as possible. I just want to say with about the men's team in 2022, a lot of our players don't have World Cup experience. A lot of teams are playing against do or play big game tournaments. And not that we have players that played in big clubs, but 
for everybody that's maybe a casual fan to this, 2022 is just to gain that experience so we can absolutely dominate in 2026. <laughs> Let's go. He's ready. He's ready. Phil Shane, what are your final thoughts, my friend? So many balls that, that Jimmy teed up right there. First, agree 100%. He was talking he'd like to see more from this team, but this team has actually been built. Greg Burrowhalter had two jobs. Don't get embarrassed in 2022. Done. Let's make it to the World Cup. Done. But build this team for 2026. And while there's guys like Walker Zimmerman and the like who are probably at their peak, most of this team is 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Yeah, I think they're the youngest going squad that's going to be played at the World Cup. Yeah. At their peak in 2026. Um, so that's number one. That's really what we're shooting for. But you know what? With the group that we have right now, um, it, it there's a possibility of getting out of this group and making some noise on the other side, just the way that the, the ping pong balls bounced. So that's number one. Number two, I agree with the 100%. As a Rams fan, born in Santa Monica, um, and where I grew up in South Florida, everyone was a Dolphins fan, so I had to be different. But they made that stadium. For all of the money that they spent, billions of dollars, Yeah, they didn't make it big enough for the world's largest sport. So, right. but remember back at, uh, I talked about uh, Detroit in the Silverdome, back at Giant Stadium, they actually had to lift the field up into the stands to get the corners right yeah. um, and then put turf on top. So anything's possible if there's enough money on the line. Mm -hmm. yeah. The one thing that I want to close with though is just as 1994 showed that there was a soccer community uh, that had value in the United States, the possibility of what 2026 brings is seeing what we've seen north of the border in Canada now, knowing what Mexico has done for the past three or four decades, finding a way to get some synergy between all of these and work together. I'm not saying we're going to have a Wales-like situation. Um, we already kind of do with Canada, but the real money is south of the border at the moment uh, where everything comes together with Liga MLS. Um, but there's going to be more interplay between these, going to be more development. And I'm not just talking about these, these made-for-profit uh, tournaments in the middle of a season. There will be because they're businessmen. There are businessmen here. And as much as you love the sport, it's money that makes the sport turn. And they're going to find a way to give the fans what they want. And that's just going to make soccer in North America even stronger. There you go, everybody. 2026, everybody getting excited. 2022 is a little bit closer, of course. Everybody should get excited. As a Peruvian, I'm trying to deal with the, the heavy dose of this American uh, bravado, but I'm with you. My wife's American. I live here. All right, we'll make it happen. But Advincula yeah. is just too perfect. <laughs> Phil, Shane, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you. It was great having you, buddy. Thank you. Hopefully we get a chance to do it again. And uh, Jimmy, it was fun watching you uh, develop as a player. Didn't quite work out. So I'm glad you have this going for you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the podcast in the pod. No, it's great working with you as always. Phil, great to see you. Absolutely. Jimmy Conrad. Always a pleasure, buddy. Thank you, man. And so can we trust as well. You still keep rolling right over the summer. Oh, yeah, it never stops. Three shows a week in Soccer We Trust. Come hang out with me, Heath Pierce and Charlie Davies. Conrad, Pierce, and Davies. It sounds like a law firm. Who's the most annoying one? Uh, they maybe I'm hosting, so they probably say me because I'm a little <laughs> bit all over the place. Uh, no, it's great. We have a nice... Uh, we have a nice uh, culture that we're being built and no, the community. It, so it's been it's been a lot of fun. 
No, it's fantastic. Please check it out, everybody. Some great interviews, some great insights. There's always previews and recaps to matches, but there's so much content, of course, on CBS Sports in Soccer We Trust. And, of course, Kigo Lasso. We have so much, including World Cup content. We got transfer stories with Fabrizio Romano and so much more. Follow us on Twitter, Kigo Lasso pod youtube.com forward slash kego lasso cbs sports and your cbs sports app you have all the twitter handles here phil shane jimmy conrad lme have a fantastic rest of your week and we will see you next time god bless america see you next time till then bye bye